Father, as we come before you and recognize your sovereignty over everything that goes on in our lives, we are humbled. And we ask, Lord, that you would cleanse us of our shortcomings today by the blood of the Lamb. Our Father, we know that you have taken all of the brunt of our sin, the guilt of our sin, placed them on Jesus on the cross. And we who are in him never need fear death again. We are forgiven. And yet as we walk through this world, Father, on a daily basis, we pick up the dust of the world and we need our feet cleansed and washed, even as the disciples did on that last night when you washed their feet. And so we ask you today, Lord God, by your Holy Spirit, that you shower us with your grace and your mercy. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive this word that you've given us. For I ask it in the precious name of your son, Jesus, who gave it all for us. Amen. Amen. It's been documented that Abraham Lincoln, when he was commander-in-chief, once listened to the heart-rending pleas of a mother of a soldier who had been sentenced to hang for the deplorable crime of treason. And seeking mercy, she begged the president to grant her son a pardon. Well, Lincoln agreed to do it. However, not taking the soldier's treachery lightly, it is reported that he left the mother with these lingering words. Lincoln said something to the effect of, still, he said, I wish we could teach him a lesson. I wish we could give him just a little bit of hanging. A little bit of hanging. I think we can relate to old Abe's sentiment. He was just being honest. If you are a parent, you likely understand what that man was getting at when he uttered those words. To pardon is by far the greater act of goodness, amen? But deep down inside, I think there are certain circumstances in which we all want to see a little bit of hanging. I'm of the persuasion that there are instances when the Lord, in his infinite wisdom, allows us to experience that. Just enough hanging in fact, to snap us into remembering just how much our pardon cost Jesus. We often become lulled into the old hat syndrome, I think. The place where over-familiarity with our relationship to Christ may lead us into an attitude of overconfidence. Times when we begin to take our faith for granted. Ever visit that place? Maybe you are in that place right now. In one of the, his earliest works, a great little book entitled God Came Near, author Max Lucado described this old hat syndrome as a direct commission from the black throne room. It presents itself in all its ugliness as one of the underground slyest agents, he says, the agent of familiarity. Our enemy's evil commission is crystal clear and fundamentally fatal. It goes like this, quote, take nothing from your victim, only cause him to take everything for granted, unquote. Well, you know the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt, right? Is it possible that you and I could ever become contemptuous 
toward our faith or your church family or your Christian friends or worse yet, your Lord. No, you say, quite impossible. It could never happen to me. Okay, well, maybe contempt is too harsh a term. Perhaps another one of familiarity's offspring might fit the bill. One that may be even worse. How about indifference? Also known as complacency. Now, speaking of this enemy called familiarity, Max writes again, he said, quote, he won't steal your salvation. He'll just make you forget what it was like to be lost. You'll grow accustomed to prayer and thereby not pray. Worship will become commonplace and study optional. And with the passing of time, he'll infiltrate your heart with boredom and cover the cross with dust so that you'll be safely out of reach of change. The question that looms before us this morning is, are you taking your relationship with Jesus for granted? Am I? Has familiarity caused us to become grossly overconfident? How much pressure do you think it would take for you to abandon Christ? You might say, I would never abandon my faith. I could never deny Christ. Well, if we learn anything from our text this morning, I pray that it's this, that fearless words are no guarantee of a faithful heart. Fearless words are no guarantee of a faithful heart. Heart. Brave words don't necessarily result in bold moves. Maybe you've gotten too comfortable with your relationship with Christ lately. If that's true, it's my heartfelt prayer that you and I will see ourselves reflected in the lives of some of Jesus' closest friends and put a healthy spiritual scare into us. Maybe a little bit of hanging wouldn't hurt. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 17. Mark 14, 17. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, 
You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. One of the greatest testimonies to the veracity of the truth of Scripture is that it reveals the extreme humanness of the people involved. The closest followers of Christ, the greatest icons of our faith, are shown to have struggled with human weakness every bit as much as you and I do. The disciples truly were great men of faith, would you say? But they were also men who greatly failed. This particular experience serves as a perfect illustration of how in a very short period of time, any one of us can move from the exhilaration of faith to the exasperation of failure. In that short of a period of time. Let's see if we can put ourselves in their sandals for a few moments and learn something from their mistakes. First of all, in this text, there is usually a prediction to consider. Usually a prediction to consider. Look at verse 27. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. This was a night of warning tremors for the disciples. The hanging was about to begin. And rightly so, as we eavesdrop on their discussion. Luke records a glimpse into their conversation on that night. The atmosphere was thick with overconfidence. Luke chapter 22. Hold your finger in Mark 14 and look at Luke 22, beginning in verse 21. Get a little context here. Verse 21. But behold, Jesus said, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Now look at what the next verse says. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Jesus says, you're all going to fall away and one of you is going to betray me. And they're all discussing who it is, who it is, who's going to do it, who's going to do it. Oh, by the way, I'm better than you. And on and on it goes. I would never do that, would you? Maybe you'd do it. But I'm greater than you. In the midst of their arrogance, Jesus was about to show them the shallowness of their commitment. A series of foreshocks here, so tremors, 
Tremor number one, they had gathered to celebrate the Passover. And as they were enjoying this solemn feast, Jesus revealed to them that one would betray him. Surely not I, Lord, it's not me, is it? They all questioned their own innocence. Tremor number two, as they reclined around the table, Jesus got up and washed their feet, taking the role of a servant, revealing to them the lack of their own humility. And at first they recoiled at the prospect, but then watched as Jesus gave them a living picture of what it truly means to be great in the kingdom. That's John chapter 13. Tremor number three, Jesus attached new meaning to the Passover as he transformed the common elements of bread and wine into the glorious symbols of his body and blood given for them for the forgiveness of sins and the establishment of a brand new covenant. Tremor number four. After singing a hymn and leaving for the Mount of Olives, Jesus laid it on the line when he said, you're all going to fall away. Every one of you. And he was quoting Zechariah 13, 7. But Jesus predicted that every one of them would be scattered in fear because of his approaching death. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's Zechariah. Every single one of the men who stood by Jesus for th throughout three and a half years of ministry, of turbulent ministry, were now about to turn their backs on him. The same friends who had confessed him as the Christ would abandon him in fear. They would all fall away, Jesus predicted. And the Greek word for fall away here is the word scandalon. Does that sound familiar to you? It's where we derive our English word scandal. Literally, it means a trap spring. The scandalon is the bait stick in a, in a trap or in a snare. That's, it's the stick that triggers the trap. It also refers to any impediment which may be the cause of someone's stumbling. To be scandalized means to be ruined, right? A scandal causes shame, causes destruction, it causes misery. Jesus was telling his disciples that they would all be scandalized because of their association with him. They would all fall into the trap of denying him because of his scandalous death that was coming on a cross. His death would cause them to stumble and to be offended. Verse 27 in the King James Version reads like this, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. It all started with a prophecy uttered by Isaiah about 750 years before this night. Speaking of the Messiah, the prophet declared this in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken they shall be snared and taken. The cross was going to scandalize them all. And they would all fail him. Have you ever thought deeply about the fact 
that Jesus' ministry from, from start to finish offended people? His birth was offensive. Son of an unmarried woman born in an animal trough. His life was offensive. The religious leaders of the day hated him. He exposed their hypocrisy and destroyed their corrupt system of religion. Many of his words were offensive. Toward the end of Jesus' ministry, he lost many of his followers because his words were so difficult to accept. All you got to do is read John chapter 6 and the end part of, of John chapter 6 and you will find out that because of the words Jesus spoke, many of his disciples walked away from him because they were hard sayings and they could not accept it. And the scriptures say plainly that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter wrote that in 1 Peter 2, 8. And Peter knew exactly what he was talking about when he wrote those verses years later. The scriptures clearly indicate that we can stumble over Jesus' death. Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 to 44 says this, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. In other words, and in the context of what Jesus is saying here in his statement, if you stumble over Jesus as Messiah and Lord and Savior and reject him, the judgment that falls upon you will be devastating and crushing. Now, I want to make an application here. It's a little bit of a different application than exactly what the context is saying. Nevertheless, it is biblical and it rings true. But I want to remind every single one of you who hears this message that before that judgment falls, there is hope for repentance. There is hope for repentance. Friends, there are only two responses available to everyone who ever encountered or ever will encounter Jesus as the Christ. When presented with the good news of Christ, you may take offense, stumble, and be wrecked. But you might still be forgiven if you repent. Eventually, you will either be broken in humility and repentance and receive him and be saved, or you will continue to scoff at his grace and ultimately be crushed with the sentence of eternal condemnation when his wrath eventually falls on you at the last judgment when you meet him face to face. Broken in repentance or scattered like dust. That's it. Those two choices. Which will it be for you? In one case, becomes the occasion for being broken of our pride, 
of our self-absorption, thereby becoming faithful and useful to God in his kingdom. That is an occasion of genuine salvation and strengthened faith. That's what we all pray for in people. The alternative, though, is devastating judgment. It doesn't get any clearer than the contrasting examples of Judas and Peter this very night that we're talking about. They both stumbled and fell over the offense of Christ's death, didn't they? Through sorrow and repentance, Peter's faith, however, recovered. Through unrepentant despair and continued rejection, Judas's did not. Major contrast. Face it, friends, the cross of Christ is a stumbling block. No question about it. The declaration of that a person can be saved simply and only by trusting in Christ's sacrifice is an offense to our pride, isn't it? A scandal to our intellect. But it is also the dividing line of faith. If you fall upon its mercy, you will be broken and blessed. But if the weight of the sin it bears falls on you, you will be crushed and condemned. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says it very well. Paul says, I know very well how foolish the message of the cross sounds to those who are on the road to destruction. But we who are being saved recognize this message as the very power of God. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the mighty power of God and the wonderful wisdom of God. That's 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 18 and 23 and 24. Jesus gave his disciples a prediction to consider. They would all be scandalized by his death. And the Gospel of Luke adds that this scandal would shake their faith to the very core. In Luke 22, in verse 31, Jesus says these very, very familiar words to Peter. And he doesn't call him by the name that he gave him. Peter. He goes back and he calls him by his name before Peter understood who Christ was, Simon. And he repeats it twice for emphasis. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And you know what the interesting thing is about that verse? The word you where it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded permission to have you. It's plural. It's not just Peter. It's all the disciples. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to have all of you that he might sift you all like wheat. That's basically what it's saying. They would all be violently shaken. When wheat was sifted, you know, it was placed in a sieve and it was shaken repeatedly and violently and vigorously from side to side until the chaff would rise to the top and then it would be blown away. And the only thing that was left was the, was the true wheat. 
The obvious purpose was to separate the good wheat from the worthless chaff. This is precisely what the testing of our faith accomplishes in Jesus' mind here. Even as they would all be tested, so are we tested. Jesus predicted it. There's a prediction to consider for them and for us. It's a repeatedly confirmed in the, in the scriptures, James chapter 1. Beginning in verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops what? Perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you might be mature and complete and lacking in nothing. First Peter, Peter writes again after this whole fiasco of his denial. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though it is necessary for you to endure many trials for a while. But these trials are only to test your faith, to show that it is strong and pure. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. And your faith is far more precious to God than mere gold. So if your faith remains strong after being tried by fiery trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So when it gets down to the core of it, when following Jesus isn't quite so easy or fun or warm or fuzzy, when his words are hard to swallow, and the question is, will your faith be able to handle it? Or will the difficulties trip you up? You know, over the years, more than a few of my friends, people very close to my heart, and my wife and I as well, have encountered what I would call faith quakes. You know what that is? Faith quake? It's an earthquake of the soul. Some of them have registered extremely high on the spiritual Richter scale. What you need to know is that at any given point in your Christian life, your faith may be violently shaken. In fact, it probably will. The question is, will you stand up to the test? You also need to know that even though your faith may fail, even as Peter's and all the disciples did. Along with the prediction to consider, there's a second thing in this text in Mark 14. There's a promise which consoles us. Verse 28. But after I have been raised, Jesus says, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Note the phrase, I will go ahead of you. I will go before you. Don't miss that. Please don't ever forget that. Psalm 37, verses 23 to 25 says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Get that? Whenever I read that verse of Scripture, I, I go back in my mind to when my, my kids were little. 
like that. And, and you, you people that have little children can understand that. So you've got your son or your daughter and you're holding hand, right? And you're walking and you're, and you're walking pretty fast and they're just barely keeping up their little legs, right? And then they trip over a rock and what happens? They go like this, but you've got them by the hand and you haul them right up off the ground, right? Set them on their feet. They never fall. They never fall. They never go headlong into the dirt. Why? Because you're holding on to them. That's exactly what Psalm 37 is saying. Although Jesus warned them of their failure, he also encouraged them with their future. I've got you in this, Jesus said. Even, even when Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you all like wheat. Then he goes, but I prayed for you, Simon, so that when you finally recover, you go back and you strengthen your brothers. I, I go before you, he says here in verse 28. I'm going ahead of you to Galilee. See, after the scandal of the cross and the failure of their faith, there would be eventually a reuniting and a restoration. Friends, whatever you're going through, if you listen carefully enough, you will always hear the promise Jesus gives of a light at the end of this rotten tunnel that you're in. What might seem like an endless darkness in this tunnel, Jesus goes before you. The question is whether or not we're paying attention to that promise of that hope. Are you? Billy Graham once told a story of a friend he had who, during the Great Depression, lost his job, lost his fortune, lost his wife, and lost his home. Pretty much lost it all. But he tenaciously held on to his faith. The only thing he had left. And one day he stopped to watch some men doing stonework on a huge church. And one of them was chiseling a triangular piece of stone. What are you going to do with that? Asked my friend. Billy says, well, the workman said, see that little opening way up there in the spire? Well, I'm shaping this down here so it will fit in up there. And tears filled the eyes of Billy's friend as he walked away, for it seemed that God had spoken through that workman to explain the ordeal which this man was passing through in his faith, which he, I'm shaping you, God was saying to him, I'm shaping you down here so you'll fit in up there. Peter could not seem to get past the prediction of his failure to the promise of his future at this point, though, and sometimes neither can we. We, like Peter, can completely ignore the prediction that Jesus makes and even the promise of consolation. Peter was more concerned with his own inflated ego. So instead of asking for the grace to get through the trial that Jesus was saying he was going to go through, he dug in his heels and he argued with Jesus and refused to accept the possibility that he could have human weakness. You know, Peter wasn't very self-aware, was he? He didn't know himself very well. Certainly didn't know himself as well as Jesus knew him. Don't miss this lesson here. In the face of a prediction to consider, Peter ignored the promise which should have consoled him, and that quickly led to the third thing in this text that I want to bring out, and that is a presumption 
that needed confrontation. Verse 29, but Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. Here's the big presumption. And Jesus needed to confront it. Somebody needed to confront Peter with this. First of all, it was an arrogant presumption. Arrogant, argumentative, and aggressive. That's a AAA version, right? You got a AAA card on your faith? Arrogant, argumentative, and aggressive? That was Peter. These were the hard edges that Christ needed to smooth out in Peter's character and Peter's demeanor if he was ever going to do work for the kingdom. Don't think that it was at first at the first denial in the courtyard where Peter's failure began. It didn't. His faltering began right here, right here in this context, before the, the cock even crowed once. He abandoned Christ right here. And that's when it happens to you and me. It happens when we think we're strong enough, we're spiritual enough, and we're adequate enough to handle the issue on our own. And when we think that, that's when we start abandoning Christ. But it wasn't only Christ he abandoned. If you read the greater context, he left the other disciples as well. How, you might ask? Well, Peter claimed to be the exception out of all of them. He's singing this dissonant note of arrogance here. Can't you hear it? It's like fingernails on a chalkboard. Even though all may fall away, I won't. Matthew 26, 33 adds that Peter says, I will never fall away. Comparing his faith to the rest of them, Peter was still claiming to be the greatest. In his zeal and intensity, he had completely ignored the lesson that Jesus taught on humility only minutes before when Jesus washed his feet. He was flat out contradicting the words of Christ and setting the stage for his own fall. He's thinking, well, maybe Matthew, the tax collector, you know, former tax man, he might slip back into his old ways and leave you. He might waver. James and John, they might slip into the trap too. But you know what? He wouldn't even put it past his own brother, Andrew. But you know, Peter, I, I will never, never, Notice the problem with Peter's response. He places himself above everybody else. He places himself above the words of Christ. And he places himself above his own established pattern of life. Out of all the disciples, Peter should have known better. How many times had Peter failed and Jesus hauled him back up? How many times? Peter's eaten his words before, right? In fact, he almost drowned on them once in the sea. You remember that? Matthew 14, verse 28. Lord, 
if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Remember that scene? And Peter did. Till Peter got all heady about stuff. And they started looking at the wind and the waves around him and he began to sink. And what did Jesus have to do? Haul him right back up on his feet again. But he did it. He was teaching Peter. Honing him. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Eugene Peterson paraphrases that like this, and I like the way he does it. First pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. Jesus' response to all of this, to Peter, look at verse 30. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this very night, right, and you know the rest. Jesus is saying to Peter, believe it, Peter, it's true. The Greek word is amen. Truly I say to you, amen, Peter, so be it. You, yourself, emphasis there, you yourself, not the others today, but you yourself, even in this very night before the cock crows twice, you, Peter, will deny me. You're not only going to deny me, but you're going to do it again. And again, three times you're going to do it. Now, let me ask you bluntly. How many times do you think you have denied Christ? Not once, but again and again and again. You may be saying, I haven't denied Christ. But we subtly deny him in our conversations when we know it may raise an eyebrow and we don't say anything about Jesus. In our secret thoughts, when we stifle Jesus and we want to think about things that we shouldn't be thinking about. In our private actions, when we know what we're doing is not right, but we continue to do it anyway. And in our public silence, when we know we should speak up about something, but we let our tongue cleave to the roof of our mouths. Again and again and again. And on the outside, we won't admit to it, but deep down inside, you know, the truth hurts us when we, want, when we finally admit to it. Maybe you're not buying into any of this right now. That's okay. Look carefully, friends, though, at the text, because neither did Peter. He didn't buy it. And you know what? You're not buying it because another human being's telling you about it. Peter didn't buy it, and Jesus, his Lord, was telling him about it. His presumption was not only arrogant, but it was argumentative in verse 31. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you. Peter's actually arguing with God here. How many of us have never done that? <laughs> this really gives us a glimpse into how human they really were, doesn't it? Even though... He had confessed Jesus as the Messiah. He treated him like someone who had just ran a stop sign in front of him. What do you think you're saying? Get out of my way. I'm not going to deny you. No way. It's road rage. Spiritual road rage. Hasn't it happened to you? It's happened to me. I'm ashamed to say it, but I've argued with God when he's cut off my plans You know, the, you know that saying, right? You want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. 
There's another saying that goes with that. Yeah, you want to make Russ angry? Let God tell him his plans. <laughs> and you're there too. I've argued with God when he's cut off my plans, when he's made me put on the brakes. Verse 31, but Peter kept saying insistently. The word actually means vehemently. I mean, he was heated. That's what the word means. He was heated about it. Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will not deny you. You want to know what the worst thing about presumption is in a leader? It's not necessarily the arrogance. And it's not even the argumentative attitude. It's the fact that it draws other people into the sin. That it's contagious. Verse 31 again. And they were all saying the same thing also. Where do you think they got the strength to do that? Their leader was doing it. That last line is a killer, isn't it? And they were all saying the same thing too. And it's not the last time that it would happen. Just look at John 21 and Matthew chapter 27. Peter led the way and a lot of this stuff not to be outdone they all climbed on board a ship heading for disaster the power of passion overtook their better judgment it's called the crowd mentality a wise writer of proverbs once said a fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are the snare of his soul in contemporary terminology fools are undone by their big mouths their souls are crushed by their words that's how the message puts it According to Luke, Peter claimed to be ready to go both to prison and to death, Luke 22, 33. But it wasn't prison, death, or even a slap on the wrist that caused Peter's faith to crumble, was it? It was a harmless little servant girl. In Mark chapter 14, the same chapter, just a few verses ahead, in verse 66, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this, this is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, and I do not know this man that you're talking about. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. You know what Jesus did? As Jesus always does. He's masterful in his lesson teaching. Jesus took a common everyday occurrence and permanently glued it to this event as a vivid reminder and gracious reminder, mind you, to Peter of his frail, fickle faith. 
Every morning at 3 a.m., whenever a cock began to crow, Peter would remember how dependent he was on God and how humbly he must walk by God's grace. Every time he heard that thing. That's how he would begin his day for the rest of his life. It was a gift to remind him not of his sin, but of his need. That's a gift. How much he needed Christ, how much he needed his Lord. So my question to you and to myself is, what is it that Jesus uses to remind you and me of our need? What thing is he attached to that? Don't ignore it. Don't run from it. Embrace it. And look at it as a gift. You know what it was for Paul, right? We don't know exactly what it was, but he called it a thorn in the flesh. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul said. For in your weakness, my strength is made strong. Yet this cock crowing was not the only thing that would pierce Peter's memory. That wasn't the only thing. Because as he was cursing and swearing that he didn't know this man, didn't even name him, this man, it's like Adam, that woman that you gave me, right? We always shift the blame and kind of do that kind of thing. This man, and the cock began to crow. Luke adds another spine-chilling detail to the scenario. In Luke 22, verse 60, it says, The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. Imagine Peter's soul, how it must have been pierced through by that look. Cock crowing in the background, the audible key trigger point, and then all he can see in his memory now is Jesus' stare right at him when that cock was crowing. I can't imagine Peter's soul must have been pierced through. Right then and there, the contradictory words from his own mouth must have flooded his mind. Remember what Peter said? Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then the servant girl's word. Surely you're one of them. I do not know the man. How could Peter say those two different things? Christ's penetrating question must have wrecked Peter. Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Peter, the one Christ called rock, was shattered by a servant girl. His fearless words of faith gave way to a failing heart of fear. If that could happen to him, what could happen to us? Many of you hearing me right now have an arsenal of confident words about Jesus, but your heart of commitment could be full of holes. Just remember, a slave girl dropped Peter to his knees. What might it be for you? What could it be for me? Peter experienced a little bit of hanging, probably a lot more than he bargained for. That's what presumption can do. It makes us arrogant. It makes us argumentative. And it's so deceptively contagious that it leads 
others away as well. The key word here, the one which we ought to take note of, is one of the smallest words in the whole entire context here, but it encompasses the largest scope. You know what that word is? Three-letter word. All. A-L-L. And they all were saying the same thing also, it says at the end. But that's not the first time we see it. In verse 27, Jesus said, you will all fall away. In verse 31, they all denied it. And in verse 50, look at verse 50. And they all left him and fled. That tiny word scares me to death. It's too inclusive. It has as much bearing on me as it does on you and it did to them, that means that we had better establish some principles that should guide our lives. And let me just give you three. I'll leave you with three, okay? Number one, no follower of Christ is above the possibility of failure. If Peter could fall, so can you. If the 11 other disciples could fall, so can we. If David, a man after God's own heart, as well as many others in the Bible, throughout church history, could fall, what makes me think that I can't fall? So don't ever say things like, I will never. I will never do that. I'll never do what she did. I'll never cheat on my husband or my wife like he did. I will never bezel funds. I will never drink to the point of becoming an alcoholic. I would never deny Christ. You should be saying, but for the grace of God, I will never do that. And every single morning when you wake up, you listen for that cock crowing and you say, Lord Jesus Christ, I throw myself upon your mercy. Help me to not mess up my life today. There's no amount of fearless words can guarantee you won't fall prey to a failing heart. The heart is more deceitful than all else, the scripture says, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. But if that was the final scene of the movie, we'd all walk away depressed, wouldn't we? There's another more encouraging principle to embrace here, and that's the second thing I want to leave you with. No failure is beyond the realm of Christ's forgiveness. Isn't that great? No. No failure. Be consoled by Jesus' promise here. Instead of wallowing in the sorrow of our past failures, focus on the grace of our promised forgiveness. Jesus says, I prayed for you. Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Romans chapter 8 says, Jesus is in heaven, interceding on our behalf. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. When Judas fell, see, Judas never got that far, did he? When Judas fell, like all the others, because they all did, he never looked forward. He only looked back at what he did. Jesus promised Peter and the others that after they had fallen, he would meet them in Jerusalem. That implies restoration. And if you study Matthew 28 and Luke 24, and especially John 20 and 21, you will find that their failure was completely forgiven and they were completely restored to Jesus' ministry and call on their lives. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says it very clearly. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
It's true that no failure is beyond the realm of Christ's forgiveness. But there's a third thing, too, I want to leave you with, and it's this. No forgiveness is possible outside of Christ's work on the cross, outside of faith in Christ's work on the cross. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. If we're going to boast about anything, we boast about the cross of Christ. That's Galatians 6, 14, by the way. Maybe you've denied Christ. Maybe you've denied him again and again and again and again. Maybe you're in denial right now. Perhaps your faith has been shaken so badly that you don't think you can ever recover, ever walk with him again. Every time you see a certain face, every time you hear a certain sound, memories of that sin flood into your mind and you see Jesus' painful and betrayed eyes looking into your heart right through you. That's a good thing. Hate your sin. Hate your sin. Realize that it has separated you and God. Run out and weep. But do not look to the tree of death for your relief. As Judas did. Look to another tree. A very gifted writer has pictured the choice tremendously well. I'll paint this picture and close with this. The author says, while Jesus was climbing up the hill of Calvary, Judas was climbing another hill, the hill of regret. He walked it alone, and on his shoulders he bore a burden that bowed his back, his own failure. Up the hill we trudge, weary, wounded hearts, wrestling with unresolved mistakes, sighs of anxiety, tears of frustration, words of rationalization, moans of doubt, and for some, the pain is on the surface. For others, the hurt is deeply submerged, buried in a rarely touched substrate of bad memories. Parents, lovers, professionals, some trying to forget, others trying to remember, all trying to cope. We walk silently in single file with leg irons of guilt. And at the trail's end, there are two trees. One is weathered and leafless. It is dead but still sturdy. Its bark is gone, living smooth, wood-bleached, white by the years. Twigs and buds no longer sprout on it. Only bare branches and a fork from the trunk. On the strongest of these branches is tied a hangman's noose. It was here that Judas dealt with his failure. If only Judas had looked at the adjacent tree. It's also dead. Its wood is also smooth, but there is no noose tied to that crossbeam. No more death on that tree. Once was enough. One death for all. What a pair, these two trees. Only a few feet from the tree of despair stands the tree of hope. Life so paradoxically close to death, goodness within arm's reach of darkness, a hangman's noose and a life preserver swinging in the same shadow.
But here they stand. The choice is yours. Which one will you choose? Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for the grace that you have poured out for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. Where forgiveness runs free, freely and completely for those who choose to accept it by faith. But I thank you, Lord, that Jesus is no longer on the cross, that three days later he rose from the grave, promising new life to all who would receive him. As we look ahead, Lord God, to the celebration of Resurrection Sunday, just in a few more weeks, help us to keep in mind, Lord, that before the empty grave was a cross of atonement. Help us to receive that forgiveness from the cross and allow your Holy Spirit to breathe into us new life that we might walk in the newness of life that your resurrection promises. Thank you for this word, Lord, and the reminder that we are human, but that you are Lord, and you go before us into the promised land, and we can follow hard after you. Give us the strength to do it by your Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.